Hi, it's Zoe Routh, and this is the Zoe Routh Leadership Podcast. And you know what? I love working with CEOs and their teams on their people stuff. Today's guest is one of those CEOs. A couple of years ago, I met uh, Barney Van Wick. That's my guest today. He is the CEO of St. Vincent de Paul, Canberra Goulburn. And I was privileged enough to work with him and his executive a few years ago when they were undergoing significant organizational transformation and have been involved with Barney and the CEO Sleepout for a couple of years. It was great to catch up with him after midway through 2020, after the crazy year that we've had with bushfires and then the pandemic and who knows what else is on the horizon, to really nut down and drill down, drill down into the nut of what is leadership from his point of view and what he has learned about people stuff along the way. He's got a rare experience. He hails from South Africa and he's worked for organizations in the finances sector in the UK, as well as finally calling Australia home, uh, where he currently works, as I mentioned, with Vinnie's here locally. So in our interview, we covered so many wonderful things. And uh, I think what comes through, as you'll discover, is his passion for people and community and that leadership is really about service. And he's got some wonderful insights. I can't wait to share it all with you. Let's get into it. And if you enjoy this episode as much as I have enjoyed interviewing Barney, please share. Sharing is caring, and it helps get the word out. So please share this episode on the social network, media, stuff. You know what to do. (laughs) Anyway, let's do it. Barney, it's always a pleasure to speak with you, and I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Zoe. Great to be with you this morning. (laughs) I'm still trying to adjust to your beard because this is a new look for you, and I love it. You're like, I'm rebelling because I'm in COVID-19 and I don't have to shave. So I am. I am. And it's it's like, this is is my stance against (laughs) COVID-19. I think it's a, like, oh, I like the rebellious stance against COVID-19. How have you, like we were talking a little bit about you before we hit record about your attitude towards COVID-19 and the pandemic in general. Have you specifically chosen an attitude that's sort of your go-to to help you and your team through this? Um, I actually did. Um, you know, for, for me, it's uh, when, whenever I have a conversation with, with any of my staff and said, well, what about this and what's, what's going to happen then? And due to the fluid nature of, of where we are at the moment, you know, I will always end up saying to them, you know what, we're one day closer to the end of COVID-19. And, and I think that that helps a great deal. It provides, you know, hope. And, and I think that's one of the things that people are looking for. They're looking for Yes, we are. We're prepared to navigate through this. We understand that that there are some expectations. We understand that there are some sacrifices, but it also says, well, we're going to get through this. Um, And I think that's the important thing for me. I love it. You might have read this. Um, It's called The Stockdale Paradox, and it was written about first by Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great, where he talks about um, a similar attitude adopted by the colonel who was held captive for seven years. I think uh, during, geez, I can't remember which war it was. It could have been Vietnam, could have been Korea. Oh, someone's going to correct me on this. And they asked him, you know, seven years as prisoner of war is a long time to be stuck. And they asked him, what's the difference between those who made it, you know, those who got through and those who gave up and died? And he said, oh, that's easy. The optimists, they all died. 
which was a bit depressing. I'm like, oh my God. And they asked him to explain, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, the optimists are the ones who say, by Easter, we'll be out. By Christmas, we'll be out. And those deadlines came and passed, and they got more and more deflated and gave up. And he said, what you need to have is, you need to have two things. You need to have, you have to confront the brutal facts of where you are. And like, like you said, you know, we've had to lay people down, stand people down. It sucks, and it's, it's horrible. And, and this is a paradox piece, you need to hang on to the hope. Yes. And you need to hang on to the hope that we are going to get through that. And it's balancing the two, the brutal reality and the never give up hope piece um, without a deadline, which is, is really useful. So I love it. It's like one day closer. Yep, that, one, that day's gone. We know that's for sure. You, know, you make me think about um, a, a, a book that I read from, from Viktor Frankl some time ago. Uh, I think there are three things that he highlighted in uh, in his experience in the, in the concentration camps, and and the gas chambers, and then all those camps. And and he said that you must have meaning, you must have purpose, and you must have a cause. And those are the three things that that he mentioned that help him through everything. And and if you read what what he experienced, you know, then I think you know COVID nineteen. Bring it on. What is it? You know, it's really nothing. <laughs> <laughs> it's much nicer to be held a prisoner in your own home than it is to be in a prison camp. That's for sure. Indeed. indeed. <laughs> that was um, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning is the name of that book. And I'll put a link for folks in the show notes. Now, Barney, you've had a wealth of leadership experience, both in Australia and in South Africa and where else globally? Anywhere else globally? A little bit in the UK, and I've worked a bit in the US as well. Um, you know, just to, during a registering of a PLC. So, um, you know, what's had, a PLC? It, it's a, we, we registered a, a public company um, on the FTSE 500 in the UK, and basically what we did is we we registered a global um, organisation. So, um, they, the you had some some tentacles in, in in Africa, some in the US, some in the UK, some in Japan, India. <laughs> so it, it was a, a bit of a global um, arrangement at the time. Wow, that's those are very different contexts. I'm wondering how, as a result or through the process of being a leader in all those different countries and all those different companies, how you define leadership. For for me, leadership is about agility and it is about resilience and it's about inspiring a team to pursue a common goal. So I I bring all four of those uh, in one line. The agility is needed. If you you talk about a global context like that and you need to be able to move between those organisations, you need to be agile because of those different leadership environments, essentially, that, that, you, that you deal with. Um, I also believe that, that you need to have resilience because you're getting tested in terms of your own knowledge and understanding of a particular field of expertise. You need to be able to pull together you know, people from, from different geographical backgrounds, experiences into a team environment to say that let's move forward to this common goal, and that is to get this organization listed on the FTSE 500, which is huge. So for me, that's how I prefer to define, you know, leadership and to say, like, these are, in terms of my experience, the the four things that I thought that was. Agility, resilience, inspiring a team to a common goal. I I missed one. 
No, it's inspiring inspiring a team. And oh, okay. The team concept is very important. And then a common goal. Oh, okay. This is number four. Okay, got it. When was it in your career that you realized you could do those things? I had um, first experience to, to different sectors. And because of the, you know, the different sectors has basically called for different types of, of leadership. And I'll give you a practical example. Within the financial services environment, um, in a very specific area where I've, I've worked, where you dealt with, with markets and you've dealt with a very much a moving platform in a, at every single given time of day, you know, managing those portfolios call for a more, I almost want to say, an aristocratic type of approach. It's about, you know, we, we need to comply. You have all these financial compliance that you have to do. You have to perform at a specific level. You have to report at specific times, levels, intervals, um, etc. So that was something that was almost called for. But it was it was you dealt with professionals, financial professionals who understood the environment. That was my very first experience um, in, in the financial services sector. The very next one that I've experienced were actually far more service oriented. It, it was about you know collaborative um, engagement. It's about you know working with people in a hands-off leadership style, where the previous one was very much a hands-on previous leadership style. This the next one was about motivating and supporting people to represent the the market, the organisation, the services. You know, engaging, getting people together. Pretty much the point that I've raised about the definition that I have in terms of leadership. And then for me, the, the, the other part was uh, transformational leadership. Um, it was about creating an environment where there's so many changes that's happening in terms of governance after the Sarbanes-Oxley environment that we've all worked in. And you have to maintain and provide services um, through fundamental changes that there were and you, you have to keep up to date with you know software requirements you know after all the changes that has been introduced um, from a compliance perspective and and the whole you know um, artificial intelligence era came about metadata that you have to be able to be on top of etc so for me it's a, that was kind of how I, I experienced leadership the change came about when i said well i could be successful in every one of those areas you know, even if there's an aristocratic approach, it's still about the fact that there's a common goal that needs to be there, that you need to inspire people, etc. Even in a transformational area, you still do exactly the same thing. You know, there's still agility, there's still the team, it's still the common goal. And, you know, being successful at all those um, different types of leadership, for me, that was when I, when I understood that, yes, I can do this. I can be successful at all of that because I, I understand where the touch points are that you need to keep in mind in terms of common leadership. How did you learn this? I mean, did you read it in a book? Did you study? Did you take a course? Was it through self-reflection? How did you come to this meta view of leadership ability, capacity, and definition across these different contexts? Are you a naturally reflective person or how did you come to that conclusion? Yes, I am. Uh, and sometimes I think I'm my own worst critic. Um, and, <laughs> and, and also, I think that it comes from a background 
um, the way that, that that I grew up. You know, my parents um, they were very strong in in believing in people from a very young age. My parents told me, "You're never better than anybody else. It doesn't matter who they are." And what you need to do is you need to always reflect on what is important, not only for you, but it's important for them. They taught me that you don't know what happened in the life of a person 10 minutes before you have a conversation with them. So be careful about what you're saying and how you're engaging, what your perception is, etc. Understand that you're part of a community and it's not all about self. Self is important. Self-care is important, but it's not all about self. It's about community. It's about... Um, the time that I grew up, I, I, I grew up in, in, in a time where there were significant droughts, where I've experienced the difficulty of where's the next meal going to come from and or, well, potentially you're not, you're not going to have a meal, you know, today or experiencing parents who are not having a meal because their children are having the meal. So I think that all of those came together. I read a great deal about leadership. I followed, you know, a number of people in terms of, of their journey. And I think here about Nelson Mandela and a number of things that I've, I've participated in um, where I've heard him, where I've experienced where his journey and, and what was important, how he highlighted a number of things. And I can carry on. I mean, I've quoted Victor, Victor Frankl. So, so, you know, all of that, I think, comes together. But the most important learning curve for me, Zoe, is the people that you work with. Because I believe that sometimes I'm the leader, but also I need to be able to be the follower. I attempt to appoint people who are specialists at what they're doing in their field, and I allow them to lead. I'm ultimately responsible. Always, that's me. That's my position. I've been appointed in that position. But how else are they going to grow? How else am I going to grow? I think it, it is very dangerous to believe that, you know, you have the answers to everything because I don't. I believe that other people can, can mold me in terms of where we should ultimately be going. Can you think of a time when you've done that, where you've turned to your team and, and said, I don't know where the answers are. Let's work on this together. Let's mold a way forward. And you've had your own perspective turned around. Um, as a result. And it could be a, a radical new view of the world life, a particular topic. Can you think of a time when that happened? Mm. I think the most recent situation is about one of the best examples that we have is, um, as you're aware, uh, over the past 22 months, um, we've been involved in in not only our, our business as usual, looking you know, after people experiencing homelessness or at risk of homelessness and you know, family services, food insecurity, poverty, disadvantage, etc., but then we had the situation of the of the drought and uh, the farmers on the drought. Now I could relate to that, and I came through that, and in, in, as I mentioned in my own past experience. And I think that the situation from the bushfires um, is is basically the turning point for me, because I I walked into the bushfire situation with a very specific view of what an emergency response plan should look like. And I must tell you, it was turned on its head. And the way it was turned on its head was essentially that the environment that we operated in there were that people didn't necessarily trust government. They didn't necessarily trust you know, charities or any support infrastructure. 
what they did trust were the people who were at the bushfires, exposed to the fires, and who were in the same position as they were. And what you've seen developed there were community relief organizations. You had people naturally responding and becoming like community relief coordinators. Now, some of them were touched on the shoulder. Many of them came out by themselves and saying, I'm prepared to take ownership of providing food, clothing, support, etc., etc." And And that changed leadership for me in a way that you would have expected, well, here's a national bushfire uh, coordinator, disaster coordinator that's going to step in and going to put all of that in place. Or as a charity, you know, we would walk in there as responders and as recovery agents, and we would assist to create all of that. It didn't happen. It was something that they created, which was important to them. And that changed my view of, of leadership and management and also has set the direction for me in terms of COVID-19, in terms of, of how we need to operate post-COVID-19. Because I think that the focus on people, a focus on the community, a focus about on, on what they would do themselves and how they would ensure that there is a solution for them as a community, that's the key. That's what we need to look at. And, and from a welfare-based perspective, I think that that's a strong focus that we should have going forward. So instead of going in like Superman to save the day, showing up with questions and saying, what do you guys want? What, how do you want to run this? And being a support as opposed to, to the rescuer. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I, I think that what we sometimes do is we underestimate the resilience of people um, and we under, underestimate their own knowledge, their own skill, um, and, you know, how they as a community can operate together. You know, we, we spend years and actually decades in educating people at, at, uh, you know, through our educational um, institutions, et cetera, and then we still believe that they're not able to think for themselves and, and to pull together and provide solutions. I think it's about trust, Zoe. You know, for me, if I look at that, as I think that it's the way that I look at my people, you know, from a post-COVID perspective, for instance, is that I need to trust their skill. I need to trust their diversity. I need to trust their commitment. I need to, to trust that they subscribe to the mission of the organization. And most of all, I think that I need to trust to provide the solution. Yeah, I think that's, um, that's a big one, right? So it's about changing perception about what people are capable of. And Vinny's has been talking about that in terms of the people that they serve for a long time, and that the people that you work with are not helpless, useless beings by any means, and they're worthy of dignity and support on their own terms. And certainly a lot of Aboriginal communities have been saying that for a long time, you know, don't just come in and try and fix us. We know what we need and let's work together on that, like listen more rather than trying to come in and dictate how it's going to go. That's an astonishing awakening. And I love it. I think that's beautiful. And it's um, very empowering. And you actually see that a lot in the rural regional communities where people have banded together neighbor to neighbor to sort things out. And those are the best solutions are the ones that are manifested on the ground. So with all this experience across different cultures, different organizations, different sectors, I am wondering if you've noticed 
Are there common people challenges that you experience as a leader and the people that you deal with? Like, are there some common patterns that you see time and time again that come up as you're leading teams? Um, yes, I, I do. Um, you know, it is, it's um, sometimes people have, they have been exposed to a situation where they, they're not allowed to, I almost want to call it, think for themselves. I know my, my dad used to call it, you know, don't do as I do, do as I tell you that type of approach and and it's that's one concern i think the other point is is basically commitment we give up too easily and we're not um, dare i say this committed to the commitment that we've made um i quite often have conversations with with people when they start in the organization and i talk to them about the mission and i talk about the vision the values of the organization etc and then quite often you, you, you experience some activity or, or behavior that, that's not reflective of it. So when you go back and you ask the question, said, well, what has changed for you in this journey? Because something must have happened that changed your original thinking, because that's what, what you mentioned to me. Then you would find that there's been a communication situation or it's a, it's a matter of I did not have the link to the belief system that I thought I had, or it's about the motivation, you know, to say that I can make a change. Now, that comes back to the people situation. It is, it's, it's again about, you know, how do you operate and provide an, an, a new horizon for people on a constant basis, you know, as a leader. And I think that that's the big thing that, that's sometimes lacking because we just so chasing the delivery of the program and the delivery of the KPI and providing the report and making sure that I've got all the metadata available, et cetera, that we often miss the horizon. You know, what, what is this horizon, the new horizon that we're working to? As a collective or as for individuals or both? I think it's more, I do believe that you would get that as a collective as well, but I think it's mostly as individuals. You know, that's mostly where you find it. So that you find that their motivation drops off if they don't have something else to grow into or grow with? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the leadership challenge that we have. And that is the, that's where part of my coaching comes in. And that is where the coaching of, you know, the, the people that's part of my executive team, you know, where we all have to pull together. I quite often find that you go into this whole um, capability assessment and I, and say, well, let's do this, 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 this um, capability review, and then you work out the you know the key performance indicators, etc. But what we miss out in that process is the people issues. It's the it's the thing that drives and motivates people, that provides the new horizons for them, the new opportunities for them, creating an environment for them to trust, creating an environment for them to be committed um, to the the mission of people. So we we put it out there. And we're saying that this is what it's all about, but we, we do not create an environment for them to basically grow in it and experience it. And, and that's the big thing. That's the issue. Now, from a collective perspective that you get, for me, that comes through to the culture you know, of the organization. If I provide an environment where people can grow and experience and increase not only their knowledge, but the experience that they can take away, that they can apply at home even, then, then from that perspective, you see, you know, that here's a better leadership culture that gets developed. That's quite 
another task on top of everything else as a CEO. <laughs> so not only do you manage the operations of the business and making sure that it's delivering and staying afloat, and then looking at the fabric of the culture to create an environment that fosters people's growth. So you're at once responsible decision maker and custodian, as well as culture architect, as well as coach to the folks. How do you do all that? <laughs> How do you balance it all? <laughs> I, I believe that um, unless you're going to make space for all of it, either going to get to some or not none of it at all. And the way to do it is to use the resources that you have around you. And, and that spreads from far and wide. It, it is about using people like yourself. Um, it is about sharing your past experiences. You know, one of the first things that I did when I started with Vinnie's, I told them about my, my whole journey. I shared the journey with them. Um, and it was quite interesting. And I've shared the learnings out of my journey. It was quite interesting how many people came back to me afterwards and said, you know what, I never thought about this. I never thought about that. So I think that we sometimes neglect sharing what we know. It's like you're saying is that, you know, I have you know, some decades of experience behind me. And in sharing that, I actually start to coach. You provide information. I, I mean, it's not just about the educational component. I have a number of, of you know, I have people that's doing executive MBAs, that's working, um, that's doing a number of, of courses and, they, and they're training and upskilling themselves, et cetera. But it's also about allowing them to make mistakes as much as I have been allowed to make a mistake and as much as I've learned from my mistakes, I'm allowing people to mistakes. They're quite often a situation where I can see that something is not going to go right. Um, you know, the coaching part of it is, is that, well, you know, asking the right questions all the time, but even if I know that it might go wrong, obviously I'm not going to allow somebody to fail. That's not going to happen. But what I will do is, is allow them to make a mistake and then help them and rectify the situation in the process by asking questions about, do you think that that's the right thing to do? Do you think that you should be doing it differently? Or do you think that there's a different you know, vantage point here or a, a point that you have to engage with or a situation that you have to engage with? Do you need to call in some support resource, et cetera, to, to get this done as opposed to relying on that specific view? So all of that, and I think it's each situation as you come across it, you know, as you, as you review an organization, that's quite often the time for you to ask these questions and to make sure that you, that you make sure that you have the right people on board, but make sure that you understand what level of coaching, leadership, support, et cetera, they're going to require, and then make the time to make that happen. I meet with every one of my executive team every week, and I have at least half an hour with every single one of them, and then collectively as well, we, we meet. And I think that makes that makes a difference. And you know, I, we talk about the experiences, talk about the matters that they've had. And I have a, a fairly, you know, just give an example: um, a person who's who's an, an exceptional retail expert. He's he's really good. And uh, you know, quite often we'll have a conversation. and said, "You know what? I think that's a good idea." And do I have that retail experience? No, I don't. But what I do have is I have very general experience in that space. So, you know, it is, it's just connecting the dots sometimes um, that would provide you the opportunity to cover that whole field. 
that's a lot of time to spend with people. And I think as CEOs in particular, so time poor and so responsibility rich, what have you stopped doing as you've grown as a leader? Mm. Uh, I, I guess I, I stopped trying to do other people's jobs for them. Because sometimes when you, you see something happening, you have this inclination of, okay, let me get this in. I can do this very quick, very fast, very efficiently, and it's out of my way. I've stopped doing that. Now, initially, it's an investment. I'm not going to lie to you. Sometimes it's a big investment. But for me, the benefit that you have of all of that is huge. Um, the practical experience of that is I have a number of people who and that has been part of my executive teams in the past who are all you know, managing directors of companies or CEOs, um, and some of them are of very large organizations. And if I think about the investment initially, the benefit that I had out of that was their loyalty, their commitment, and their preparedness to journey with me in securing or arriving at that common goal that I've mentioned before. And so it's that situation. That's where you build trust. That's where we build loyalty. That's where, where, where things start to come together and you gel as a, as a team and, and working together, that investment in, 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 in one another. So yes, initial investment at the back end, that's when the benefits are coming through. And that's when you're really seeing, and that's when you're getting more time, you know, to do the things that you have to do. I think that's a really important lesson, and it's one I've been talking to some leaders actually this past couple of weeks about, and that is the false premise of, oh, if I just do it myself, I'll just get it done. And then I'm like, mm-hmm, you're building a rod for your own back by doing that, so suck up the time it takes to help them, coach them, to help them to learn to do their own job. And it means you have to weather the mistakes and the time that it takes for them to get up to speed, but yeah, the payoff, as you say, is huge. So you mentioned also making mistakes and as somebody who's had lots of experience in leadership, what's one mistake that you feel was significant for you and, and how did you learn from it? Uh, I think one mistake that I made was um, not trusting my gut. Can I say that? Oh, boy. And I, this, is a, this is a dangerous field. I, I understand that. When I engaged with, in a recruitment environment, um, I've appointed to a very senior position and the interviews went well, very, very well structured. The, the questions were all there that we normally ask, etc. But in that interview, I felt uneasy, but I could not point it out. I, I, I just did not feel well about the situation, but it was about all the boxes were ticked. In some cases, it was really fantastic. And when the appointment um, was made and we, we started to on the journey, it was literally within the first three weeks that I realized that was a mistake. And the mistake was that the individual that we've appointed did not fit in with the culture of the organization. And it was my mistake. And that was actually what what I detected in terms of the responses to questions were not, you know, were absolutely correct. It was how they were framed around the organizational values and the mission of the organization and how the two would fit together. That's what actually happened. That was why I didn't feel well about this whole thing. The lesson that I've learned is, is that 
you need to rely on that past experience because that's the gut. It is just that experience that you have in the past. And, and you know, if you feel uneasy, check and check and check again, you know, and do a different check of that situation, but don't just let it go. That for me was one of the things because it not only, you know, cost, you know, it was a loss in productivity. It, it was about, you know, the individual that I've appointed that was, I, I think I've done them a great disservice to appoint them. Um, I should have been the one that stood up and said, look, I don't think that you fit in with this organization. The, the culture is, is, is totally different to, to your values and how you are preparing yourself for the future. And I should not have done that. So from that perspective, and I apologized, you know, didn't and said, look, I've made a mistake. I should not have appointed you. That was a mistake. Yeah, that's a tough one, you know, because uh, they look good on paper. They've got all the expertise and that sort of values match. It's like, how much do you put up with somebody who's got different values and yet they could perform? And it's always a mistake. And I've heard about this tension before in other contexts, like a, a legal firm, say, for example, they've got a star performer. They can bill a lot and yet they are selfish, willful lone wolves and don't collaborate with others and it's it's corrosive to the organization and so the mistake is hanging on to them because they bill a lot and then you sacrifice all this other it really important currency which costs in the end more so that's a, that's a tough one and you you're right like and you relied on your experience until you could make it visible and distill what the issue is the issue was and that's a tough one to wear uh, because you've got the people affected by the cultural incident, you've got the person themselves. How do you look after yourself? I mean, you've got a lot on your plate. You've got a large organization that you manage, and we've gone from crisis to crisis this year in particular. How do you keep yourself well? Yeah. Um, I believe in, in, in self-care and, and also in care for others. Um, that for me is very important. So the self-care that I do is I, I normally get up at um, you know, before five in the morning and I go for a, for a good walk every morning. Um, and, and for me, that's very important. I need to, that's my, my time out where I start and I plan the day. I try as best I possibly can when I leave the office to leave what I have there behind me then come home um, and it's important for me then to have dinner with my family you know it is that that's it's family time we have to have that dinner have a conversation have a bit of a catch-up um, thereafter what i do is i also participate in other charities um, that i am either board member or a secretary for and or on their audit and risk committees um, etc and i believe that provides a little bit of diversity it's a different environment, but I can make a contribution there. So you deal with different people, different situations, etc. I work in the garden on a weekend. Love my garden. For me, that is the time that I have to take time out and I just get in the garden and do all the things that, that is really totally different. And um, I do wash my cars, you know. It's like my car and the daughter's car and, you know, my wife's car. Is really? <laughs> car <my> washing? <laughs> You know, it's almost like the karate kid thing, wax on, wax off. <laughs> oh, my it's God. It's that physical activity, Zoe. It works a job. <laughs> I, I aspire to having, you know, sustenance in the garden, but largely I go out there, look at all the stuff to be done, and went, huh. <laughs> avoid it <laughs> definitely not nurturing my soul with the, in the garden or washing cars 
but you know, it's important that you pick stuff that works for you. Indeed. <laughs> and, and I blame my dad for that. My my dad had the saying is that if you want to borrow my car, you know, you cannot drive in a dirty car, so first wash it and then you can drive it. <laughs> <laughs> Mm, and that was every week. Oh, my goodness. That's a smart dad. Yeah. All right. My last final question is, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Um, you, the best piece of, you know, of advice comes, I, I think, back to, um, to my parents. Don't ever think that you're better than anybody else. Don't ever do that. And... The other thing that I personally believe in is that we all should protect and serve. Now, some people think, oh, what you say serve, it means that you just, if you, you, you can never take a position or, and never, never have a, a hard discussion with somebody. That's a big mistake. I serve somebody if I sometimes have a hard discussion with them about a matter that is that's not good or that's unacceptable or that should change, etc. The protection part for me is that you know it is sometimes we find ourselves in a bit of a selfish environment that I, like I've mentioned before, it's it's a very self-centered approach. It's about me, it's about my rights, it's about my position, it's about what I what I want and what I need. And you know, if I if I protect that, yes, it's one part of it, but there's also another part, and that is that I form also part of a family. I form part of a of a relationship. I form part of a of a friendship group. I form part of an organisation, and I need to have that protectionist approach to say that it's not only about me. Is that you know I need to protect others in in my environment as well. I need not only to serve my own interests, but also need to serve the interests of the organisation that I work in. I need to serve the mission that I'm and the vision that I've subscribed to. I need to serve the values of that organization. My conduct should be such that I protect and that I serve. And for me, that's my personal view of, you know, how an organization should, should be in what I believe in. Well, that's just beautiful. And it has been just fantastic speaking with you about your experience and your insight. I love hanging out with you. So thank you so much, Barney. This has been fabulous. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you, Zay. Thank you for the opportunity. I truly appreciate the opportunity. Wasn't that wonderful? Barney is one of the kind of people that you just love being around. He has got such a gentle spirit, as well as a spark of humor and engagement. And he always has time for you. He really wants to listen and engage. And he is a delight to be around in any capacity, as friend, as colleague, as client. I think some of the key messages for me out of this interview are a couple things. And one of them is that it's not just about yourself, it's about community. And Barney lives and breathes that in everything that he says and does. And I think that's so true. And he's got such a strong commitment and follow through to looking after those in the community. And I love his quote from his, the best piece of advice that he ever got. Don't ever think you're better than others. Isn't that beautiful? Well, if you enjoyed this, sharing is caring, please feel free to send on the recording and the link to somebody you care about who would value hearing from Barney, because I sure did. And the other thing too, is if you have a recommendation for a leader you think would be awesome to have on the show, please email me, zoe at intercompass.com.au and let us know who you think would be wonderful to have on the show. 
In the meantime, live well, lead well.